to Beyond the Shadows. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. We have a great show coming up for you tonight. It's going to be uh, pretty detailed. We're, we are diving into some deep, deep stuff this evening. Our place in the universe, our place in the cosmos. Uh, what does all of this mean? I mean, well, I guess we're not going to get down to the meaning of uh, life, the universe, and everything, which is, of course, 42, but, uh, you know, our place in the cosmos, it's not just Earth. We have this whole vast universe around us, and I was really inspired here uh, just early this week. Many of you probably saw uh, this article. I know I posted it on my uh, Facebook, the Space Hotel, for for lack of a uh, better term, but basically it is the uh, Voyager space station that uh, is going to, I guess, construction is going to start in 2025 and open up for business 2027. It will house 400 people approximately, and they will also have uh, uh, researchers and scientists and, and everything like that going on uh, up there on this space station. So this was constructed, or being constructed by Orbital Assembly Corporation. Uh, a lot of news sites were, were putting this out there uh, on, I guess it was Monday, uh, or was it yesterday? Oh, it was yesterday. It was yesterday, uh, Tuesday. And what's really fascinating about this whole thing is like, this is our really first big, I mean, we've had a lot of big forays into, uh, into the universe, of course, you know, the, the moon landings, we had the space shuttle program, we've sent satellites all over the solar system. We even, you know, even the Voyager uh, satellites are still out there, like beyond, uh, you know, the solar system now, which is, or at least on the cusp of it, which is absolutely fascinating. They're still sending data back, which is uh, amazing that they're still doing that all these years later. But uh, with this, this is... You see in all the science fiction movies, you know, the, the space station outside of Earth, and a lot of these depict them now uh, rotating to uh, simulate artificial gravity. You even go back to, like, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, they had them uh, spinning. And that, you know, that's actual real science. We haven't had a space station or a spacecraft actually do that yet. What we see in our science fiction films, and that is what they're actually doing with this. And I'll go ahead, and for those that are watching the live stream, I'll go ahead and put a photo up here for you, and there it is. So, yeah, Orbital Assembly Corporation is constructing this. Um, they've they've had a team together since I believe 2013, uh, and this is like a major step forward in our taking civilization out into space on a regular basis. This is also privately funded, so this is not you know taxpayer dollars, you know, the government is not, it's not like NASA is funding this or, or anything like that. Uh, this is, uh, these are private investments and they've had so much, uh, it, it's been it's such a popular concept that uh, their, their site that, that they had uh, to actually invest into it, they maxed out. So I don't know if they'll be reopening that, but they've already maxed out on that. Uh, so, you know, a couple of interesting things about this. So you can see the what they call the gravity ring on this. And this is like really the first of its kind seriously developed. You know, it's really been, you know, in concept 
we've seen it in the science fiction movies, like I said, but they are actually going to pull this off. And you can see in the photograph here, uh, they're, they're demonstrating uh, SpaceX uh, rockets that are docking with this. So, um, yeah, and Nicole looks like it's already constructed. No, it's just a, it's just a wonderful uh, photograph, probably, you know, computer generated. Uh, does kind of look like Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah, it, it kind of does. So, <laughs> or a giant hamster wheel. Yeah, uh, you, you never know. And uh, yeah, Nicole, it's kind of like an Airbnb, <laughs> really a very, very expensive Airbnb for sure. But like I said, this is really our first huge step in taking our civilization out into space on a regular basis. And they kind of break down here uh, in, in their slides. So you can find this out on the like the investor site, on, out on their website as well. Uh, and how they're kind of like routing uh, a lot of different, you know, jobs out in the space. So they're showing, you know, the concepts, rotating space station, fuel depots, uh, you know, so, you know, spacecraft can fuel up out here. Uh, space solar power stations, space platforms, asteroid mining facilities. We've talked about mining asteroids now for a while. And uh, again, going back into science fiction, that was a big plot with with the expanse, uh, you know, the asteroid belt. So in this, you know, all these things funneling into this space station, you're saying that our next decade of reality and into the 2030s, uh, thousands of people living and working in space, inexpensive refueling to access any point in the solar system, unlimited renewable energy on Earth, enabling a robust space-based economy, increasing resource independence from Earth. So a lot of wonderful things that, of course, you know, I mean, they're, of course, trying to sell us all on this on this idea. But this is really becoming a reality that, you know, we eventually you know, need to, we need to leave Earth. And that's something that I've talked about for a while. And of course, there's, you know, a lot of people are going to question, okay, you know, all of this, all of this time, all of these resources, all of this energy, you know, being used to go out into space, you know, shouldn't we be, you know, concentrating on, you know, what we need to do here on Earth first, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Of course, we have natural disasters, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, all of these things. And I don't think anybody's saying ignore what's going on on Earth. You know, we still need to take care of ourselves here, but we do eventually need to, you know, expand and get a foothold into space. So there's some happy medium somewhere. Uh, of course, you're always going to have the polar opposites that, you know, are going to, you know, hammer away at each other. But, um, you know, there's certainly a happy medium that can, yes, we'll take care of our own here on Earth, but we do also need to have that forward vision going out into space. Um, like I've said, uh, there, uh, there are concerns, of course, of getting off the planet. And I know that, you know, when I say that, you know, I'm not trying to scare anybody or create panic or anything like that. Um, it is in our best interest long term because this planet is not always going to be here. Now, there could be, of course, something short term that happens, you know, a, uh, you know, asteroid out of the blue could, you know, destroy us or, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the, the pandemic goes crazy and we all, you know, we all die or something like that, right? I mean, you have your, you have your, uh, 
you know, short-term catastrophes that could happen. And you do need to prepare for those. You know, something like that could seriously happen. And so what happens, you know, if something ravages the earth, you know, you need to prepare to take our civilization elsewhere. Otherwise, you know, humanity's not going to be around. Uh, but also, you know, a, a very serious concern, and I know it's not for like a, a billion years out, but uh, you have this issue here with the sun. Uh, eventually, you know, it is going to you know, turn into a red giant. And when it does, I mean, it's really, you know, I'll be honest, it's like a billion years from now. But at that billion year mark, or take a few thousand years, um, all the water on the earth will evaporate because the sun will have become so hot that, you know, it, it'll basically scorch the earth. When it does balloon out into a red giant, it will essentially be as large as the orbit of Mars. Now, to a degree, it will push the planets outward while that's happening, but the area that it will encompass will still engulf the planet Earth and the, the planet will be gone. So at some point, we need to get off of here. And right now, what we're doing is we're taking those baby steps to get out there. Um, you know, we're not going to find ourselves, you know, traveling to some other solar system in our lifetimes. Uh, but, you know, we need to get those steps into place now so that in the future, other generations will be able to to take those steps and do that. So let me uh, just check real quick here for uh, questions that you guys may have. Uh, so Sarah Yusuf asks, will we have the same humanistic pattern of exploration and conquering for resources like we do on Earth? Well, you know, I can't speak for those that are going to go out there and do that. Um, given human nature, we will probably attempt to do so. Um, of course, one of the big things that we do need to go out into the universe for um, our resources, you know, we will eventually need that. We will at some point exhaust the resources here on Earth. Uh, either, um, you know, and that's one of the reasons why people are so interested in mining the asteroids. You know, at some point we will exhaust our, you know, our metals here on Earth. Now we do have, you know, vast resources here that we're still excavating. It's probably one of the, um, you know, great, you know, reasons for such an interest in Mars. You know, Mars has a high iron content. It's why it looks red, uh, because, you know, rust, <laughs> seriously. Uh, so there's a great interest in, in Mars. There's great interest in the asteroid belt for resources like that. Um, another thing to consider is that as our population grows, we will need other places to grow food. Uh, you know, people, you know, there, there is a, uh, there is a concern about population growth. And, and people will say, well, you know, if you look at, you know, the uh, sheer land mass that we have, you know, we can fit, you know, X number of people in here. So we are good. Well, and you guys have heard me say on, on this show before that, yeah, but there's some places I wouldn't want to live like out in a desert or, you know, on the side of a mountain somewhere, you know, I just, that's, that's not me. 
Uh, also, a thing to consider is that we still need to be able to grow food. And so as uh, our as our cities expand and we are increasing our number of people, we need to feed those people. But our farmland is shrinking. So, you know, the areas where we can grow our food are getting smaller and smaller and smaller while we're you know, increasing, you know, the population more and more and more. So we will have to find other places to actually grow food. Uh, and that's why a lot of experiments are done out in, in space right now, um, you know, as these uh, different space stations are orbiting the Earth in attempting to grow uh, foods out in space. Uh, again, taking it back to science fiction, you know, the, uh, the Expanse actually uh, has within their storyline uh, out on Ganymede that they have a uh, uh, an area there, a vast area there where they are actually growing food and taking it you know, back to other parts of the solar system to be able to feed people you know, because of the fact that there's such a population now that people still need to eat. So I hope that uh, that answered your question. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, humans will try to do that. And, you know, we may end up in a situation where we get spanked by an alien civilization as we try to do that. Um, so I guess back at the picture here, the object to the right of, I guess maybe you're talking about this photograph. So the object to the right is a incoming, uh, an incoming ship to dock at the space station is what that is. So, uh, interesting thing here is that if we go back to the uh, the the red giant, and uh, now people are saying they're getting hungry. No, <laughs> go figure that. <laughs> um, all right, well, going back here to the idea of the the red giant um, and its expansion engulfing the Earth. Uh, there's there's also the idea that we are already survivors of this occurring before, uh, and that this has actually happened before. And, and scientists have uh, have theorized on a number of different levels of how you know, this is not our first go around with this solar system. So, the Earth certainly was created from our sun as part of its ecliptic uh, field of debris. So, you know, basically space dust from when the solar system was created. However, our sun is barely hot enough to fuse hydrogen to helium. And because of this, scientists actually believe that we originally had a different kind of quote unquote mother star that died billions of years ago in a supernova. And so, you know, that idea, well, we're not quite there yet. Uh, that idea that we've been another solar system before, and that solar system exploded in a supernova, creating our sun and our planets and all of that, that this is not our first go around. Now, whether you know there was a civilization in that previous solar system, we have no idea. Uh, but you know, this is why people say we're all made of, of stardust. You know, because all that debris ended up forming the planet and then eventually, you know, the human race ended up on it, you know, all the animals and everything. So we're all stardust coalescing here on 
uh, on this planet. So speaking of supernovas, now this is another possibility here when we're talking about extinction events and why we need to get off the planet and why we need to expand out into the cosmos. Um, So supernovas are so bright and powerful that when they explode out in the universe, they will show up on our daytime sky, you know, extremely bright. And at nighttime, while they're still going, they're actually brighter than the moon. You know, it's um, an amazing event. And, you know, sometimes these, you, you look at ancient history and when, they've, when they have actually witnessed supernova, you know, that's where some of these different, you know, legends and lore and, you know, remarks about the gods and things like that have, have come about. A lot of scientists also believe that we did have a small extinction type event about 2 million years ago with a supernova about 120 million light years away from us that actually killed off uh, many of our, our sea animals. So if that can happen, and they say, you know, if there's a supernova within like 10, uh, 10 light years of us, it will obliterate Earth. So if that can happen, and we really don't know when one's going to pop up, you know, I mean, we, we can look at stars and, you know, say, okay, this one's in this stage and this one's in that stage, but we're, we're, we don't really have the technology enough right now to be able to predict when one is suddenly going to pop and there's going to become a supernova. We also, when we're looking at these things in the sky, we're looking at the past, so when we talk about, you know, light years, I mean, that's the amount of time a light year it is the amount of time a year for light to travel from its origin to us. So when we talk about something that's, you know, 120 light years from us, well, that event, that light that we're seeing happened 120 years ago. So we're actually looking at the past. So um, it, it, there's a lot of issues here with trying to, you know, of course, be able to predict a supernova wherever one may go off. So again, it's one of those where we need to step out into the, into the cosmos to you know, try to expand and make sure that, hey, if something happens to this planet, there's some random cataclysm like a supernova or an asteroid hits a planet or whatever, that we're able to get elsewhere. You know, a lot of people believe that, you know, Mars, Mars was once possibly inhabited with life and that that life could have come here and seeded Earth. And so I, I'm really fascinated by some of the, um, some of the artwork here that, you know, people will create. And because, okay, this year is a, uh, an artist's uh, rendition of Mars with water. And what I always find interesting with this, whenever they show Mars with water, is they keep the land masses red, you know, as if, you know, there's still going to be uh, that issue with the iron oxide on the planet's surface, even with all this water. Well, if it has all that water, it's probably teeming with life and the land masses would actually be green like Earth. They would have, uh, you know, they would actually uh, 
you know, have just different land masses than us, but it would still be green with life and kind of look similar, just, you know, a little smaller of a planet. Uh, but you look at, you know, some of the evidence on Mars that, yes, there was once water there. You can see where there were rivers and streams and oceans. Uh, it's really quite amazing. And, you know, it met with some sort of cataclysm. A lot of people believe, you know, an, an asteroid strike, uh, you know, smashed into it. You know, whether in, in that, like, massive scar across Mars's surface, a lot of people uh, speculate that that was an asteroid strike. Uh, there's also the idea that an asteroid hit the backside of it and, um, you know, part of the crust of the planet basically came off taking the atmosphere with it because uh, very very uh you know uh low gravity atmosphere now low oxygen levels you know it's not breathable you know for humans of course right now so a lot of different theories of course but is it possible that mars was teeming with life perhaps if it was an asteroid strike they saw it coming couldn't do anything about the asteroid itself and they jettisoned people here to earth possibly possibly so we'll get into some more of that stuff here in a little bit i think i saw a question here um so sarah yusuf the congregation of aspects of sustained life uh, is really small what makes you think there is somewhere we can survive well um it, and I understand that, you know, you need to find a planet that's in that Goldilocks zone, uh, but there's so many billions of galaxies just in our, or I'm sorry, so many billions of solar systems in our galaxy and so many billions of galaxies within the universe, the known universe. We don't even know, what's, you know how much is beyond so just do the math you know we're we're one sitting out here if you just take our galaxy you know say okay there's one in the milky way galaxy that has life okay now you have all these other billions of galaxies that are out there well i mean the odds are there's there are uh millions if not billions of planets in a goldilocks zone that can sustain life it's just a matter of finding them and actually we have found a number of exoplanets that are in a Goldilocks zone. Of course, you know, we're, we can't send anything up there to go check it out yet, uh, but there are plenty of areas out there uh, which would be able to sustain life. It's just a matter of you know how to figure out to get there. And right now we're taking those, again, small baby steps to be able to do that, but we have to start somewhere, and that's you know above our own planet in our own solar system. Uh, we're not going to see it in our lifetimes unless you, know, you plan on being you know, several hundred, maybe even thousand years old. So, all right. So we do want to move on here a little bit from this. We're, I mean, we're still talking stars, cosmos, all that stuff. But interesting thing on um, the uh, website for Orbital Assembly Corporation within their media that they have posted is a quote from Konstantin Solkovsky. Excuse me. Uh, the earth is a cradle of humanity, but mankind cannot stay in the cradle forever. So who is Konstantin, Konstantin Solkovsky? Well, uh, 
Solkovsky was a uh, Russian Russian cosmist. Basically, he was a he was a scientist, and he's really the guy that developed many many of the early concepts of rocketry. Uh, now, cosmism is an idea that we came from the stars and we need to return to the stars. It's actually a type of uh, philosophy that goes way back. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, and there was a big movement in Russia uh, in the early 20th century uh, to develop this technology to return to the stars. It's kind of fueled in part by fiction writers like Jules Verne and Herbert Wells, almost kind of like how we're inspired right now by our modern science fiction that um you know a, a lot of what we uh are a lot of the concepts that we develop and a lot of the inspiration for our, our people that are you know in the space programs and are developing uh you know rocketry and you know, these different uh, again you know looking at how this you know space hotels being developed you know the rotation and everything i mean this is all inspired off of our science fiction you know, we uh, had Arlen Schumer on back in um, back in the summer, and then uh, you know earlier than that in this last spring, we had those uh, couple of guys from the Star Trek uh, web series, you know, talking about uh, how influential our science fiction, like Star Trek, and you know other uh, you know other movies and shows from pop culture, have actually influenced our technology now. Well, it happened, you know, back then too, just. In a different level, different technology, but um, you know, we always think of you know, well, the space race started in the 1950s. Well, it was predated, you know, by Solkovsky and his in his peers. So uh, he actually developed the equation for uh, the mass of a rocket in 1897, and in 1903 uh, he came up with the. A formula for the horizontal speed for minimum orbit around the Earth. And these equations are actually used by the Russians when they launch Sputnik. Uh, absolutely fascinating that something, you know, think about, you know, early, uh, you know, 1900s before we even had, you know, flight in the air, before we even had airplanes, that ideas for rocketry are already being developed. But it did. So interesting story about Solkovsky, though, is... Um, that apparently he once asked um, an intelligence that he believed was around him. And he didn't like say God, he didn't say, you know, spirit guides or anything like that. He just kind of like put it out there into the ether. Uh, can you show me, you know, a sign that you're here? And apparently the clouds above him morphed into some sort of uh, cross shape, just like, boom, out of nowhere. So he took that as a sign to keep going with with his research. Uh, he believed that uh, humans would eventually colonize the Milky Way and was a proponent of panpsychism. So now what is panpsychism? So this is part of the philosophy that, uh, that I was talking about before. Uh, panpsychism is one of the oldest philosophical theories that's out there, actually dating all the way back to the time of Plato, described as a theory that the mind is a fundamental feature of the world which exists throughout the universe. So we're starting to get into connected universe type stuff here. 
So another way to put this by Plato is the world is indeed a living being endowed with a soul and intelligence, a single visible living entity containing all other living entities, which by their nature are all related. So again, everything being connected, connected universes. I've well connected universe portal is where you guys are watching the live stream. We're actually, you know, accessing this from, from the uh, links that are in there. So um, you can also see just from that, you know, a single living uh, entity containing all other living entities, you know, on this world. It's like, doesn't that sound a bit like uh, the planet Pandora from Avatar? I mean, it does to me, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of that idea. Again, everything being connected and, you know, one thing affecting the other, you know, we, we affect the universe, the universe affects us and vice versa. Um, of course we can expand all of that out, you know, to the entire universe, not just our world here, because anything that we do here on our world will affect the universe. I mean, we've already shot things up there into the universe, you know, um, you know, the original Star Trek movie as terrible as it was, um, you know, actually kind of made that point with a Voyager satellite uh, that was that was launched out there into space actually coming back you know how how many hundreds of years is it into the future that uh, that Star Trek was supposed to be and you know that that alien life form is looking for additional input that intelligence that consciousness whatever the heck it was and ended up taking the form of the of the bald girl <laughs> you know was trying to fulfill Voyager's mission and so you know, again, you know, that from us affecting something else out in the universe. Sarah Jane throwing down, I am one with the force, the force is with me. I love that dude from Rogue One. <laughs> he was like my favorite guy. Uh, and yes, universal butterfly effect. Absolutely. Um, so is this, uh, Sarah, you said, does this philosophy sort of relate to a return of grand consciousness or like a soul reaching nirvana or heaven? Well, basically it's, um, you know, it, it's basically talking about all of us being a part of a singular consciousness, even though we're our own individual person, that we are still kind of plugged into whatever that over enveloping consciousness is, and um, we affect it while it affects us. So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week with the simulated universe, where um, you know, as we are, you know, acting, basically acting out our part, playing our role, whatever you want to say, living our life within the simulation, we have an effect on us while, it, while we have an effect on it. You know, the, the question becomes, um, and I think Victoria had, had said something about this, that um, I think it was Victoria, about, um, you know, changing the rules that you know, we still live out our lives, we're able to change what we do. The question becomes, is there a way to be able to change the rules of the simulation? And so this, this is all you know, very, very related to each other, just in a little bit of a different mode of thinking, where last week we were talking about uh, you know, a, a simulation. This week we're talking about inner workings of the universe, but they're really kind of one in the same. We're just using different terminology to talk about it. 
<clears throat> All right. So this idea is also plays into because um, you're talking about um, you know, grand consciousness, us returning to the to the stars. I mean, that's kind of what this is about. Um, you know, cosmism you know, that we came from the stars. We need to return to the stars. This philosophy actually even goes back further than Plato. This actually goes back into our uh, deep, deep past. When we look at ancient cultures like Egypt, for instance, where they had their seven different parts of the soul. And I talk about this actually a lot when I start talking about um, shadow entities, because one of those seven parts of the soul is the shadow which stays here on Earth. But... Um, along with the with the ka, the animating force, but other parts of the soul, like the ba and you know several others, actually go off to the constellation of Orion. They're returning to the stars. That's you know their idea of of the afterlife and and everything that they're they're buried with. Um, you know even down to the hieroglyphs and the you know the book of the dead. You know the the different scrolls and uh, you know the chariots and you know all of those things that, that they're buried with. These are things that are to help them get to uh, the constellation of Orion. So this return to the stars. And um, it's interesting because even like the, um, you know, the Dogon, which you know, they're also there in, in Africa, and they talk about um, you know, returning to Sirius. And in their, in their teachings, before we even discovered... You know, an additional star that was next to there. They already talked about, you know, coming from that star that their people were, were from there, uh, which is really, really fascinating because it's like, how did they know that that was there when we didn't even have the instrumentation to be able to pick it up until just very recently? Uh, so, you know, these teachings already exist uh, and have existed for thousands and thousands of years that we are from the heavens and, you know, we are going to return there. And so, you know, like, like with Egypt, you know, they're talking more on a metaphysical plane, the afterlife, uh, you know, your soul going off to there where, uh, you know, somebody like a, a cosmist is going to be like, well, we're going to do it physically. You know, we're physically going to go out into uh, the Milky Way. We're physically going to go out into our solar system. We're physically eventually going to make it to one of these, you know, other galaxies that's going to be a long ways off but eventually we are going to figure it out of course how do we know we're going to figure it out well we're pretty sure that uh, other civilizations around the universe have already figured it out themselves now they have a much greater head start on us yes i'm talking extraterrestrials and aliens they have a much greater head start on us uh, you know, because we're actually a relatively young planet, you know, four and a half billion years old. I already talked a, a bit about the fact that, you know, this is our really kind of our second go around, at least, for being a solar system. There are plenty of other, uh, with the universe being, you know, 14 billion years old, there are plenty of other uh, galaxies and solar systems out there, much, much older than ours, that have had longer times to be able to develop uh, their technology. So uh, the idea that, you know, extraterrestrials could come here, whether it's 
through a physical craft or they've figured out some sort of uh, way to maneuver. We talk of, you know, wormholes and stargates and all of that, all that stuff that we get from our science fiction. It, it's, it's becoming reality. We're actually right in front of us right now talking, you know, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this show, we are seeing our science fiction play out right in front of our eyes. Um, you know, so getting to the point of being able to travel interdimensionally, we'll eventually get there. It's probably not happening tomorrow, probably not even happening next week or next year, but at some point we're going to figure that out. And I think we'll eventually figure out that a lot of these things that we are seeing around us are other entities that have figured out how to travel interdimensionally, whether it comes off as a shadow person or a shimmer man, or, you know, even as some sort of, of apparition, or maybe it comes off as, as a gray alien. You know, I think we'll discover that, you know, a lot of these have figured out how to bend space and time to be able to traverse the stars at a much quicker rate than, you know, doing the old Newtonian way of, you know, strapping ourselves to a bomb and shooting ourselves up. It works for now, but to get long distances, it's not going to. It would take too long of a time. So let me check your uh, questions and comments down here. Um, all right. So, yeah, we're, we're not talking Heaven's Gate, though, uh, Sarah. That's, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're not talking about about that um you know are we all going to uh, eventually we are all going to you know make it to the afterlife and discover what that you know home world is and all that stuff but you know we're not you know or you know the the ones that off themselves because of a you know comet flying overhead or something like that no i mean that's not what we're talking about here but um yeah people do go down that route and which is is really scary um, so let's see, um, I already talked about, uh, the idea of we originally came from Mars. Um, and also there's even an idea there that you know, we could be, you know, how many times have we moved from one planet to another? If, you know, the human race does come from, uh, another planet, you know, how many times have we made that jump? From Mars, well, you know, beyond Mars is an asteroid belt, and a lot of people believe that that was once a planet. Well, did that planet once inhabit life? Did it go from the asteroid belt, whatever planet that was, to Mars to here? Of course, there are also the you know legends of you know a planet like Nibiru. Did we come from another solar system, another galaxy somewhere, and we were dropped off here? We are, are we survivors already from another planet? It's very possible. Um, there was some actually uh, some actual like breaking news <laughs> uh, earlier today. Uh, you know, kind of kind of before. Well, I mean, I, I threw it into my show notes just before uh, we went live. But uh, the SpaceX SN10 rocket, basically the rocket that they're putting together to, this is Elon Musk, to go to Mars with, because they want to be able to come back. The idea is, you know, you, you take a rocket somewhere, you land, you lift back off, you know, come back home and land again. 
So the issue that they've had is making that landing because they need to land with basically the thrusters down so they can lift back off. And so far, they've dramatically failed twice. Today, they stuck the landing. They made it happen. They were, boom, able to do it. But then a few minutes later, there was some fire that caught underneath and the rocket exploded anyway. So they're, they're still working on it. It's all unmanned, of course. These are, these are just their tests. But, so they got a little further this time. But for their you know, aggressive schedule of doing this, you know, I, I guess, before the end of the decade to get out there to Mars, um, you know, it's, uh, it's looking a little dicey. But, you know, our early space program in the 1960s went through, you know, a lot of these, you know, bumps along the road. And, you know, I mean, again, you know, I, I would love to see it happen. Um, we're definitely going to see it happen. I think a lot of these, um, you know, ideas of, hey, we're going to be having, you know, thousands of people working out in space. I, I think we will see that in our lifetimes. It, it is definitely something that is that is happening. Um, so, um, okay, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I got that, Sarah, that, you know, the belief that we will return to the stars. Yeah, and that's, and that's kind of the philosophy that, you know, we are, we're from the stars in uh, we're we're going to be returning there. They were kind of doing that a more of a, I guess, a spiritual level, you know, where this is we're doing it on a uh, on a physical level. Victoria Monday says, "I do feel that the dawning of the age of Aquarius is not really a time period starting. I feel that as a mankind opening their eyes, ergo, the dawning is actually a realization that the age of Aquarius is a concept." Or a movement of humanity to a connective consciousness. Um, yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, the the dawning of the age of Aquarius is from everything that I've read and studied. It's it's kind of supposed to be like that, you know this this awakening to the consciousness uh, of the universe that we will you know, will become more knowledgeable about the inner workings of the universe. And I think this is this is information that we've had before um, that this is knowledge that we had known about the universe thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And we lost that over time. Um, you know, whether, you know, it was a global cataclysm, like many people believe, um, but somewhere along the way we lost it. And I think, you know, now we're starting to come across that again. It's like, I, I guess in many ways it's like humanity has had, you know, a second chance here that we were growing, we were developing, we had learned a lot of things and then boom, whether it was, some people believe it was a comet impact. Some people believe uh, it was like massive solar flares, whatever it was um, that caused great destruction across the earth in most civilizations, uh, you know, most you know, most religious beliefs, most histories around the world talk about, you know, the Great Flood. This is a thing that really happened and wiped out great, great parts of the world. And when that happened, we lost a lot of our knowledge. We lost a lot of our history. The, um, the way people used to know how to be able to do things, we lost, you know, tapping into, um, you know, the the earth and using the earth's energy and all those amazing things that we see in our ancient sites of power 
you know, they were able to, you know, recreate that on, on certainly some levels, you know, where we see Stonehenge or, you know, the Great Pyramids and things like that. So, you know, they still had knowledge to be able to do those things. But then again, you know, we eventually lost it there too. So I, I think we are recapturing that now. We've, you know, grown greatly in technology. Um, you know, we have, you know, things that they did not have back in ancient times that we have now, of course, would be like computers and cell phones and things like that. Um, but they had a better understanding of, uh, you know, earth energy as it pertained to the consciousness and human energy. And so they were able to enter altered states of consciousness, uh, you know, perform amazing healings and things like that. And so I think what we're seeing now, uh, because you see a, a lot of people returning to the roots of the world in that way, where we're learning about a lot, a lot of things metaphysically again, but you see this great technology taking off as well. I think we're going to start seeing this intermeshing of the two here in years coming up, uh, which I think is going to be absolutely amazing. And so um, as these two things come together, we may start to see uh, uh, more amazing things happen. Maybe this is how we unlock that that key to traveling interdimensionally. Uh, this may be how we learn how to uh, travel through time. You know, as we develop this technology and we develop our consciousness, because I, you guys have heard me say many, many times that I believe when we finally discover how to travel through time, I believe it's going to be you know more with your actual consciousness, like. Uh, you know, the, the story from somewhere in time where he, he was actually able to will himself into another point in time. I believe it's going to be more like that. And whether we, you know, perhaps we attach some sort of technology to it to to help us to get to that state of consciousness. Maybe that's how it works. I don't know. Um, but I think that these the meshing of these two between technology um you know, in, in our metaphysics is really going to spawn off a whole new age of how we interact within the universe. So I'm really excited about, uh, about where things are, are headed. Um, yeah, we're kind of back to, uh, yeah, Neo awakening the matrix, red pill or blue pill, which is kind of what we were talking about last week with, uh, you know, with the, the simulated universe. Uh, so, okay, Sergey, knowledge that we had before, are we discussing Atlantis? Certainly, uh, Atlantis is a part of that. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of debate as to whether or not it really existed, you know, where it would be, all of that stuff. Um, you know, I'm not going to say one way or another, you know, which place I believe that it was, because there are, there are a lot of compelling places for where Atlantis could have been. Um, and some people will say that it wasn't one specific place. It was an entire like worldwide culture. And there are a lot of great arguments for all, for all of that. I'm not going to get too deep into Atlantis here, but, um, you know, I do, I, I do believe that it was a culture and I believe it had a, you know, major massive capital city, which is what's described in Plato's works. Now, Plato didn't, you know, just create that off the top of his head. He actually got those stories from Egypt when he was there. This is before the destruction of the Library of Alexandria, um, that he had actually, you know, written these stories from accounts that were there uh, in Egypt. And so 
you know, it, it would be wonderful if the library hadn't been uh, destroyed. And so we could refer to some of those records. Uh, there are also theories that uh, there is a library under the Great Sphinx. Uh, we, we do know that there is a hollow spot uh, under the Sphinx. So seismic testing has revealed that. And of course, people will say, you know, Edgar Casey predicted that. And that is an amazing prediction by Edgar Casey. Uh, but we don't know what's what's down there. A uh, lot of, you know, stories about, you know, uh, people from the uh, Egyptian antiquities going down there in the dead of night and sneaking in there and doing whatever to get whatever. We don't know. Uh, that's all kinds of speculation and, you know, conspiracy and all that. I, I do think it's very fishy that once those seismic readings were detected, that they had everything halted, um, you know, that, that we couldn't go down there and, you know, and go check it out, that everything was stopped right then and there. Uh, that's a real shame. So are there, you know, is there a hall of records down there that has additional information about the, the ancient past? Perhaps, of course, people will say that, you know, those records are the Atlantean records. We don't know. But this is just my, my gut from everything that I've read and researched and, and all of that is that I believe that there was a large, amazing capital city that had all those concentric rings and, and everything. It's an amazing, beautiful place. Um, but I, I believe the culture of Atlantis also spread out from it as well. So it wasn't just like one city, you know, the surrounding countryside and, you know, maybe they had colonized other, you know, other ports and other areas of the world. Probably. But then that great cataclysm happened. Um, and of course, there's a lot of different theories as to which one it was. Was it, you know, you know, was it the Great Flood? Was it Mount Vesuvius going off? You know, there are you know, a lot of different speculation as to what would have you know, caused this. Um, but when that uh, civilization was destroyed by this great cataclysm and, you know, it became flooded or fell into the sea or you know, whatever truly happened to it, you know, there were survivors from that. So, you know, those, you know, watching the live stream now, you guys are all have access to connecteduniverseportal.com. So the last monthly Q&A video, um, Nicole had asked if, because, uh, you know, I asked, hey, give me some questions about, you know, ancient civilizations and history and all that. And it was, she had posted this right before Valentine's Day. She asked if, the Atlanteans had practiced Valentine's Day. <laughs> so the way I answered that, you guys can go out there and, and watch that monthly Q&A video. And you guys had a lot of great questions too. Um, the way I answered that was, uh, well, the civilization of Atlantis predated Valentine's Day, of course. So they didn't necessarily celebrate Valentine's Day. They may have celebrated some other day of love, through you know whatever god or goddess was uh, appropriate for them uh, to celebrate love, but because I believe that there are survivors from Atlantis that repopulated other areas of the world, or you know were taken in by another civilization, and you know interbred and what have you, you know of course some people believe that. Perhaps the ancient Egyptians are actually the survivors of the Atlanteans and other civilizations, possibly as well. Um, you know, 
perhaps Sardinia or you know, a number of other locations, especially around the uh, Mediterranean basin, that there are descendants of Atlanteans who today celebrate Valentine's Day. So there you go. <laughs> um, Victoria Monday, couldn't Atlantis be a realm, for lack of a better word, and not a physical place? Uh, perhaps you would have to use something like Mark Fiorentino's slip wave to access it. I mean, you could, you could make that case for, um, any of our legendary locations that are talked about, but we haven't found yet. Fountain of Youth, the Halls of Valhalla. Um, we, we could say that about most anything <laughs> we haven't, we haven't found yet, but, um, you know, I think, again, I mean, you know, my personal opinion is that, you know, it was, Atlantis was a culture, maybe, maybe almost kind of like a country, but it had that one, at least one major city and its influence spread out from there. I do think it was um, actually physical. Could it have been a, you know, mental state of being or what have you? Well, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I guess, you know, you, you could put it on par to, you know, maybe something like, uh, you know, like Mount Olympus with Zeus and all that, you know, but just the way that it was described, because when, when you look at, I guess, even when it comes to like Valhalla, when you look at um, those type of you know, legends and stories and myths they basically tell you there that you're on another plane of existence, that this is, you know, above the world. Um, again, almost kind of like going to the stars, right? But when it comes to Atlantis, it's, it is described as a physical place. So I suppose there are people that, you know, could, you know, make it out to be a state of consciousness, but I, I tend to believe it was more a physical place. So, um, See if you guys have any other questions here, because we are getting down to the last few minutes of the show. Um, you know, specifically, I think it's going to be really, really interesting what the next several years hold for us as far as uh, you know, going out into space and what we may discover out there. You know, um, like when we go to Mars, you know, is yeah, if some ancient artifact of an ancient civilization is discovered up there, are they going to share it with us? Um, you know, is, is that something that they're going to immediately divulge to us? Like, Hey, we found this, um, you know, and if it was human, you know, <laughs> I don't know if they would actually share that with us immediately. Cause you look at, you know, everything that's been going on with uh, UFOs over the last 60, 70 years, they they took so long to finally open up and share information with us. You know, they were just kind of like starting to disclose that, you know, hey, you know, here's this piece of footage we can't explain. There's just one this past week with um, was an American Airlines flight where they saw a long cylindrical UFO in the air and the government didn't deny it. You know, they didn't you know confirm it either, but they didn't deny it. 
American Airlines actually kind of confirmed, well, yeah, you know, we, we confirmed that with our pilots, but the government's kind of like staying silent on it. So they're no longer denying things. And they did, you know, release a little bit of footage here a couple years ago. So, um, you know, are they going to, again, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, back to the 40s and 50s, 60s, you know, they denied, 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 even though there are all kinds of uh, reports of the UFO sightings. And you had the Brookings report come out and, and say, well, you know, if, uh, you know, if UFOs are revealed as being positive, there's going to be this mass panic. And so, you know, there are a lot of people that say we've been conditioned over the last 50 years through our pop culture that it, it's acceptable. And now they're just starting to slowly reveal it. So if they go out there to Mars and they find something, is it going to take another 50 years for them to finally open up and say, yeah, there's actually stuff up there? I really hope not. Um, but that's kind of the way things have gone for for so long. And I thought I saw something up here. I, I, I've been trying to find it off and on here. Um, is Tom McNicholas said something about the moon. Um, oh, okay. Tom McNicholas, if our moon is so close to us, why isn't there any water on it? Um, there may be some ice crystals on there. Uh, some of our, uh, I guess, scans of late, for lack of a better term, have, have revealed that there are possible pockets of water on there, but there, there's no atmosphere. So there's no, you know, water can't run on there. There's no, um, you know, you, you can't form a cloud there and have it rain or anything like that because it's just there, there's no atmosphere, very, very little gravity. Uh, it's extremely cold up there. So any any water that's there is going to be in the form of ice crystals. So there may be a little up there, uh, but it's going to be, you know, very small at this point in just in the form of ice. So, all right. Um, and Nicole Gross says, I think they're doing things on the backside of the moon. There's a lot of speculation uh, about the backside of the moon. Of course, now that's an even colder environment there on the backside of the moon. Um, you know, it's, you know, many, many degrees, uh, negative uh, degrees up there in the backside of the moon. But there are, there's a lot of speculation about there being like alien bases and things like that on the backside of the moon. Um we, we don't we don't know what's there in the dark side. <laughs> uh but there's a lot of speculation about that. And you know, again, is it one of those that you know will be revealed? You know, what's amazing about the moon is that it's in a tidal orbit with the earth. You know, tidal orbit meaning that it the moon doesn't spin, it's locked into place around the earth. And it is perfectly positioned that when we have an eclipse that it will that totally blocks out the sun you know and it it is it perfectly covers it um you know other planets and their moons and things like that they they don't have that where an eclipse is is perfect like that but here with the earth in our in our one moon it is so there's a lot of conspiracy theories about that that the moon was perfectly placed or that the the moon is a you know is actually a spaceship and a lot of things like that and I don't know how much I adhere to any of that but you know it's one of those like really interesting things about our Earth and Moon and our solar system um, that is so perfectly placed where it is so um, 
All right, so let's go ahead and wrap this up, everybody, because we are at our hour mark. Um, yeah, it's always fascinating when we talk about you know space, the universe, and in our place uh, within the cosmos, because I really do believe that we have a place out there, and I really do believe, uh, I've made this adamantly clear uh, in, in many of the shows, that we do need to take these steps to get off the planet and find other areas to colonize, because at some point... Earth will be no more, which will be an absolute tragedy because there is so much history here. And, you know, you got to think when when that sun goes red giant and envelops the earth, we're going to lose the pyramids. We're going to lose Stonehenge. We're going to lose um, all of these amazing historic locations uh, around the world. They will just be gone and wiped out. That will be an absolute tragedy. But you know, we have to, we have to save the human race and we are going to need to go elsewhere. So, um, these steps now that we're taking, um, are absolutely amazing and they have to be taken. So, um, all right, everybody, that is going to do it. Really do appreciate this and, uh, check out, of course, connecteduniverseportal.com. I've uploaded a lot of, uh, you know, great content up there. I've been doing the uh, morning mug videos on a pretty regular basis. You just got a, uh, your monthly Q and a video up there for, uh, for February. I've been putting some sneak peek videos there of, uh, the shadow dimension, uh, out there. And so, you know, that's the upcoming docu-series on shadow entities. So be sure to check all that stuff out. I will be putting the uh, next question for the March Q&A uh, into, into the uh, community threads out there. So be on the lookout for that in the next coming days as well. So everybody have a great night. See you next time.